Uh, good morning, Genesis Church. Good morning, sir. If you're new or visiting and you're wondering what's happening in the room, that's a really important part of what we do. In fact, I had someone come and tickle me just a moment ago, so anything can happen during greeting time, I suppose. Uh, hello to those of you that are tuning in with us online today. I hope wherever you are, you're still on spring break and the weather is great because these last couple weeks of spring break here in central Indiana have not been wonderful, but we're glad to have you with us today. If you're new or you're visiting and you're uh, with us in the room, we're so glad to have you. We would love to connect with you at the blue tent in the lobby after service. So thanks for joining us today. Um, my name is Jerry. I am the campus pastor here at our Carmel location, and it's good to be with all of you today. Um, as Kevin mentioned a little bit ago, it's Holy Week, and traditionally during Holy Week, we celebrate the week leading up to Easter. And today's Palm Sunday. It's a special day where we Traditionally, you would celebrate Jesus arriving into Jerusalem on a donkey, people waving palm branches, declaring that he was their king. They were so ready to crown him a king. But as Kevin mentioned, the, the tragic thing of Holy Week is by Thursday, we find Jesus, the people that were ready to make him king were turning on him. One of his own disciples was going to um, turn him into the authorities. He was going to be arrested and then he was going to be handed over to the Romans where he'd be brutally beaten and then murdered on a cross on Friday. And we call that Friday Good Friday, ironically. It seems like such a weird name. But the reason that Good Friday is good is because Jesus, it's the day that Jesus died in our place. He laid down his life for ours. And so we would love to invite you to join us for Good Friday services here at Genesis this coming Friday. This will not be online. It'll only be here on our physical locations in Carmel or Noblesville at 6.30 p.m. But I hope that you can join us there. But thankfully, Good Friday is not the end of the Easter story, because just as Jesus predicted it, he would rise from the dead on Easter Sunday, proving that he is, in fact, the Son of God. He had the power to raise the dead. He has the power to give us eternal life. And so we would love to see you worship. We would love to invite you to join us as we celebrate the resurrection next Saturday and Sunday. So we're going to have Saturday services at 4.30 and then Sunday at 9 and 10.30. And for you 10.30 people, I want to give you a little secret, let you know a little secret. It's going to be crowded in here, okay? So I would encourage you to think about maybe the 9 o'clock or the Saturday service. We'd love to see you whenever you can join us. Just know it might get a little crowded in here, but that'll be okay. And for those of you that join us online, it'll be at 1030 as well. Now, traditionally, we would study through the story of Palm Sunday, but we're going to do something a little different today. We're going to continue in our year-long study of the Gospel of John together by picking up a conversation that we find at the end of John chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to John chapter 6 right now. But here's what's interesting. In John chapter 6, there's a conversation that's recorded for us. And as I've studied it this week, I've realized it actually mirrors and it foreshadows the events of Holy Week where people want to make Jesus king, but by the end of the story, they're turning against him. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But before we do, I want to take a moment and pray and to ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance as we study God's word together today. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of uh, our church family. We're thankful that we can come together today. Holy Spirit, we are thankful um, for the gift of you in our lives. When we receive Jesus by faith, you live inside of us. And we can see and we can sense you when we come together. But most importantly, we thank you, Father, for the gift of your son, Jesus. And so now as we, as we turn our attention to John chapter 6, Holy Spirit, will you open our eyes, the eyes of our heart to what you want us to hear and see and learn and apply in our life today? For some of us, this is going to be a familiar story. But would you help us to see and hear new things? Would you help us 
to apply old truths and to live them out every day so that we would leave changed. That's our goal, Jesus. We love you. Holy Spirit, we, we ask for your help right now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this is the third week in a row that we've been in John chapter six. And I want you to see something before we jump into the story. There's a lot that takes place in a 24 hour period. Two weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus miraculously fed a crowd of several thousand people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And we know it was a miracle because there was leftovers, okay? And then later that night, Jesus put his disciples on a boat, sent them off across the Sea of Galilee. And then later he went and walked out on the water to meet them in the middle of a storm. And then the conversation we're gonna look at today at the end of John 6 takes place the next day. So that is a lot to tie into a 24-hour period of time. But I also want you to pay attention to some really important details that John shares with us at the beginning of John chapter 6, because he's, it's almost like he's saying, hey, pay attention, don't miss out on these things. So I want to go back to John chapter 6, verse 2. It says this, a great crowd of people followed Jesus because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Now, if you go on a few verses later, John tells us that this crowd was about 5,000 men. But when you counted the women and children, it could have been as large as 15 to 20,000 people. That is a massive crowd of people. And after Jesus miraculously fed them, the crowd looked and said, we, they had decided they were going to make Jesus their king by force. They were going to force him to be their king. Now, I think John tells us all of this to let us know, to let us see that at this point in time, Jesus was at the very height of his popularity. Imagine how large those crowds would have been. People coming from far and wide to hear what he had to say, to see what he was going to do. But then there's another detail that John records for us in verse four that I don't want you to miss out on. It says this, the Jewish Passover was near. Now that might seem like a throwaway detail. Why does that matter? But here's why this is so important. We talked about this two weeks ago. If you take the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you put them together and you, you try to read them chronologically, what you will discover is that the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6 took place two and a half years into Jesus's ministry. And his entire ministry was only three and a half years long. So when John tells us here that the Jewish Passover feast was near, what he's telling us is that Jesus is literally entering into the last year of his ministry, the last year of his life on earth. And in John 6, at the beginning, we see that the crowds were swelling and they wanted to make him their king. But by the end, what we're going to see is Jesus is going to say something. He's going to do something. And the crowds are trying to decide if they even want to follow him anymore. And so the question is, what would have to happen for this crowds of thousands of people to come to Jesus and say, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I don't, I don't know that you are who I think that you are. So let's dive into this conversation and take a look. John chapter six, verse 22 says this, the next day. So the next day after he had fed the 5,000, the next day after he had walked on the water, the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Now, here's why, this is why this is important. John is telling us the very next day, these large crowds are still in hot pursuit of Jesus. They are chasing him around this lake wherever he goes. Look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
In other words, they're like, hey, we noticed that you didn't leave with your disciples. There were no boats. How, how'd you do that? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Now, there's a lot happening here. First of all, notice the word sign. This is about the 10th time in John's gospel that the word sign or miraculous sign has been used. And we've said this before, but every time, uh, what's the purpose of a sign? A sign is to point you towards something, to focus your attention on something. And so when John records these signs and miraculous signs, he's saying, don't pay attention to the sign. The signs are meant to pay attention to who Jesus is and to tell us why he has come and what he has done for us. But here we see that these crowds were ignoring those signs. And so Jesus calls them out. He says, I know why you're here. You're here because you're looking for more bread like I, like I gave you the day before. And then look at what Jesus says to them in verse 27. He says, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, pay attention to what Jesus is doing. He is challenging them to say, hey, look, I know that you ate, I know that you ate the miraculous bread yesterday, but I want you to think about food that doesn't just fill your belly for today, but food that literally will feed your soul for all eternity. And so listen to the people's response to Jesus in verse 28. What must we do to do the work God requires? So they come to Jesus looking for bread. Jesus says, I want to tell you about bread that can endure to eternal life. And the people's question is, but what do we have to do to be made right with God? How many times have you asked yourself that question? How many times have you wondered about that? And maybe you didn't say it out loud, but you wonder like, what do I need to do to please God? What would it take for me to actually make God happy so I know that we're in a good relationship. Now, I don't have any scientific data to back this up, but here's my hypothesis. I think that's the most frequently asked question in all of human history. I think all of us ask us ourselves this question more than we would care to admit, because if we can find the answer to this question, we would know how to have acceptance and peace from God. And thankfully for all of us, Jesus is getting ready to answer this question. So if you have a pen, if you're taking notes, I want to invite you to write this down. The most important question in all human history, what do we have to do to be made right with God? And this is what Jesus says in verse 29. The work of God is to be a really good person and to go to church a lot and to give away your money and to serve often. That's not what he says. That might be what we would expect him to say. In fact, we might wish that he said that because that's like, oh, check, 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 check. Good, I'm good. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. Let me say it again. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. In other words, if you've ever wanted to know how to live at peace with God, if you've ever wanted to know how to make God happy, if you've ever wanted to know how your sins can be forgiven, Jesus says, you believe in the one that he has sent. Now, this leads us to a really obvious question. Then who has God sent? If that's true, who has he sent? Now, I realize for us about 2,000 years removed from this, especially since we're in a church environment, we know the answer 
somehow is going to be Jesus, right? We know that's right, but apparently the crowd with Jesus right in front of them, they weren't picking up on all of these cues. Listen to their response, verse 30. They asked him, okay, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now, less than 24 hours ago, he had just fed this massive crowd and there was leftovers. And now they're saying, hey, we're going to need you to do that again. No offense. We're just not sure that we believe in you yet. We've seen you heal the people, but it would be nice if you would just feed us on a regular basis. Now, I don't know if these people were stubborn or bold or dumb or maybe some combination of all of those things, but this is a really bold request when you think about it. But they go on to explain why they're asking this question. Look at verse 31. Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, if you have no idea what, this, what, it, what they're talking about here, let's pause because I want to step back and take you to an Old Testament story. They're referring to a story of their ancestors from the book of Exodus where God called a man named Moses. And he said, Moses, I want you to go to the land of Egypt and I want you to lead my people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. That's the story that they're referring to here. And in Exodus chapter 16, when they launch out on this journey, the people begin complaining that they don't have any food to eat. And listen to what God says in Exodus 16, 4. God said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough food for the day. In this way, I will test them and see whether or not they will follow my instructions. And if you read all the way down to verse 35, what you discover is for 40 years, this is what God did. He provided manna miraculously every day. They would go out of their tent in the morning and there was enough for them to gather. And if they gathered too much, it would spoil. It was an everyday thing for them. And so in John 6, as clueless as the people might seem to us, what they're saying is, hey, God did this for our ancestors. And we saw you do this yesterday. We would like to see you do this every day because for generations leading up to this, the rabbis had taught that when the Messiah comes, he would reenact this miracle of manna from heaven. And so the people are just leaning into what they've been taught. They've leaning into what, what they've heard from their ancestors in the past. And so you can kind of see their point, right? Hey, Jesus, we want to believe that that's who you are. But can you prove it by doing this over and over and over again? Look at Jesus's response in verse 32. Very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Look at the people's response. Yes, always give us that bread. So Jesus has their attention. A day before he had given them physical bread for their actual stomachs. And now Jesus is claiming to have access to bread that can feed them their soul for eternity. And the people say, yes, exactly. That's why we're here today. That's why we keep chasing you around. We want to see you do this over and over and over again. And I want you to pay attention to what Jesus says next, because what he says next changes the conversation. What he says next is actually the beginning of the crowd looking at him and saying, I don't, I don't think so. Verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So the people come to Jesus and say, we want more bread. And Jesus says, I have all the bread you need. 
I am the bread of life. <clears throat> now take a moment and put yourself in their situation. Less than 24 hours ago, they, were, they had convinced themselves that Jesus was going to be the founder of Panera Bread, and they were ready to buy stock and go public. Like, this is amazing. Can you just imagine what this would be like? This is why you should be our king. You would just take care of all of our, all of our basics, but now you're telling us you're the bread of life? What does that even mean? I just picture them being more than a little confused. Like, are we talking about the same thing here, Jesus? So here's the question. What does it mean when he says, I am the bread of life? This is the first of seven times in John's gospel where Jesus is going to make a specific I am statement. They're only recorded for us in the gospel of John. And in each I am statement, Jesus is claiming to be able to provide something very specific for me and for you, for the whole world on a spiritual level and for eternity. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he wants the people to understand he's not just a miracle worker that's come to give them food for their bellies. He has come to make them right with God. And speaking of God, it's no small thing that he says, I am. Because when he, when he claims, when he says, I am, he's actually claiming to be God. If you go back to the book of Exodus in chapter three, when God reveals himself to Moses, he says, I want you to go and to set my people free. And Moses' response back to God in the burning bush is, um, hey, God, can you tell me your name so I can tell the people who you are? Like, do you have a middle initial or a last name? Because I'm not sure that they're going to know who you are. And God's response was really simple. He said, Moses, I am who I am. Now, that might seem really weird to us, but from that point forward, I am became one of the names of God throughout the Old Testament. And pastor and author Kyle Eidelman notes that every time Jesus makes one of these I am statements, he uses the same word structure that's found in the book of Exodus. So it's a not so subtle way of Jesus saying, I am Yahweh. I am God. You can trust me. I've got everything that you need right here. And so now this crowd of several thousand people that are ready to force Jesus to be their king, they have a big decision in front of them. <clears throat> Will they be willing to listen? Will they be willing to seek to understand what he means or are they going to reject him? And I want you to see their response in verse 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread of life that's come down from heaven. Now, if you're a parent, you can appreciate this moment. How many of you parents love doing special things for your kids? You love giving them gifts or taking them places to eat. You love to see the joy on their face. But you know what happens shortly thereafter? I want more. I want something different. I don't, why, I don't even know why we're here. Why are we doing this? And you're like, oh my gosh, you guys are totally missing the point of it, right? Is this, is this just my kids maybe? Because no one, everybody's giving me blank stares. You, you experience this, right? But it's not just kids. It's all of us. All of us deep down. We like what we have when we have it. But it doesn't take long for us to get to a place where we're grumbling and we're complaining because we want something more or we want something different. Well, Jesus wasn't a parent, but I think that's the pain he's feeling right here because the day before he had given them physical bread. And now he's saying, I've got something better for you. And they are grumbling against him. But in spite of their grumbling, Jesus doesn't give up on them. 
he makes another attempt to help them understand what he's talking about. Verse 47, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. Now pay close attention to what Jesus did. When the people grumble, he simply repeats everything back to them. He says, let me remind you of what we're talking about here. And he begins by the whole, this whole idea. All you have to do to be made right with God is to believe in the one he has sent. He says that first. And then he says, oh, by the way, you brought up Exodus 16. I'm glad you brought that up. You know that all of your ancestors that ate the manna died, right? He's pointing out that, that the manna was a temporary solution to a temporary problem. When the Israelites arrived in the promised land, the manna stopped coming. But not only that, everybody that ate manna, they died. And that's really bad news if your hope is in physical bread for your stomach. So after repeating that, Jesus circles back and says, let me repeat the good news to you. Verse 50, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Jesus talks a lot about eternal life and living forever. It's something that we're all curious about. And so while the people are looking for physical bread, Jesus says, I, I've got something better for you than physical bread for your physical life. I want to save your soul. I want to give you access to eternal life with your God in heaven. And then he spells it out really clearly. Look at the end of verse 51. He says, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. I mean, he basically says, look, I'm not here to be your earthly king. And I'm not here to feed you bread every day. As the bread of life, I have come to lay down my life for yours. One year out from his crucifixion, he calls his shot and says, the bread that I'm talking about is my flesh. It's my body. And then he goes on to verse 53 and he gets real specific. Verse 53, Jesus says to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Now, there are some strange and vivid imageries that Jesus gives us right there. And it's hard for us to wrap our mind around what he's talking about. And I just want to be real honest with you guys. As I was preparing for this week, do you know how tempting it was to just kind of sidestep this whole conversation? We could have talked about lots of other things, but these are Jesus's words. And if we follow him and he claims to have eternal life, we need to ask ourselves this question. What is he talking about? How is this the way for us to have eternal life? So what does he mean when he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood? Now, I think it's pretty clear that he's not promoting cannibalism. He's not saying you have to physically eat my flesh and physically drink my blood. His point is that in a little over a year, he would die in our place. His body would be broken for us. His blood would literally be shed for us. All the reason that there's animal sacrifice in the Old Testament was that a blood sacrifice is required for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus is saying, my blood will be shed for you. And a year later, during his final Passover on earth, Jesus would sit at a meal with his disciples and he would say, 
I want you to take this bread and I want you to eat it and I want you to remember what I've done for you. And his disciples could have said, well, what are you, what are you talking about? You'll see. And then later in that same meal, he would have taken a cup of wine and said, I want you to take this wine, remember my blood that'll be shed for you. Jesus, what are you talking about? You'll see. He is foreshadowing all of these things for us. But what about the crowd? What would the crowd do? Well, look at the crowd's response in John 6, verse 66. From this time forward, many of his, it doesn't say the crowd, it says his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So at the height of his popularity, when the crowds were huge and they were ready to make him their king, Jesus gives this really difficult teaching and all the people start to turn away from him. Now, I realize this is a lot for us to take in this morning. It's a really deep passage. So I want to take a moment and step out of it and ask this question, what does this have to do with me and you? What does this mean in our relationship with following Jesus? Because when we read this story and stories like this, isn't it easy for us to criticize the crowd and say, how did they miss it? Or maybe you read this story and you think, man, what is Jesus talking about? That is weird. So I think this comes down to a really basic question for us. Do I trust Jesus as the bread of life? Am I trusting Jesus as the bread of life? Because according to Jesus, the only thing that any of us has to do in order to be made right with God, in order to receive the gift of eternal life is to believe in the one that he has sent. And people are like, ah, I think that's Jesus. And then he says, well, you have to trust in me as the bread of life. So what does that mean? My connection group had this discussion a few weeks ago. We were meeting in our living room and I said, guys, what do you, what do you think Jesus is talking about here? And I just, I want to share with you what we, what we think this means. It seems to mean that you're not disqualified by your shady past when you come to Jesus as the bread of life. It seems to mean that you don't have to worry about your imperfect day-to-day living and you don't have to worry about the expectations that anyone else has placed on you. Because when you come to Jesus as the bread of life, he says, I have forgiven you. I have everything that you need. Learning to trust in Jesus as the bread of life means that we learn to rely on him completely for the joy and the peace and the hope that we're looking for in this life. That is the message of the gospel because our sins deserve death. But by the grace of God, we are forgiven and we are restored. So what does it mean to trust in Jesus as the bread of life? We come to him daily. We learn to surrender our will to his instead of imposing our will on his. We practice obedience to what he's calling us to do instead of making our own way. We trust in his identity for us instead of making an identity apart from him. I mean, simply put, Learning to make Jesus or coming to Jesus as our daily bread, as our bread of life, means that we trust in him for every single thing that we need every moment of every day. And that does not mean that life is always going to be easy. It doesn't mean that there will never be hardships. But here's what we do know. Here's what we believe here at Genesis. Learning to trust Jesus as the bread of life, learning to trust in Jesus means that our greatest fear is taken care of. The greatest thing that any of us fear is death itself. And the reason we can celebrate Holy Week 
and Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter weekend is we believe that Jesus went on to do the things that he claimed to be able to do for us. And on that Friday, when he died on the cross and said, it is finished, he said, I have paid for every sin that shames you, every sin that separates you from your heavenly father, even the one that you're afraid to admit out, to admit out loud. It's finished. I've, I've taken care of that. And when he rose from the dead three days later, he proved, I have the power to give you life so you can be restored to your heavenly father forever. Four times in John chapter six, John says, I have the power, or Jesus says, I have the power to raise you up to life at the end. That's his promise to us, to literally, physically raise us from the dead so we can have eternal life with our father in heaven. So after the crowd begins to thin out, I want you to listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 67. He turns around to his closest disciples and he says, you don't want to leave me too, do you? And listen to what Simon Peter says in verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, but pay attention to verse 69. He says, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is what faith in Jesus looks like. We have come to believe and to know. I've got all kinds of questions. I've got all kinds of baggage, but we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so for those of us that have received this message from Jesus, I want to challenge you and I want to encourage you to do what I'm trying to do as I read this, is to come to him every morning and say, Jesus, you're all that I need. And I've got all kinds of worries and all kinds of frustrations and all kinds of doubts, but I believe and I know. Will you come, will you help me right now? It's interesting, John, in John 6, Jesus says, come to me, come to me, come to me. We don't invite him to come to where we are. We go to where he is and say, you are my source. Show me today. And so for those of us that are walking with Jesus, I just wanna challenge you to come to him as the bread of life. But maybe you've been sitting on the fence with Jesus for a long time. Or maybe it's not even a long time. Maybe you're investigating I just want you to know, I believe the way we believe what Jesus says here is true. He has the power to forgive your sins and to restore you in your relationship with your heavenly father. And so if you're curious about beginning a relationship with him today, it comes through belief. That's all he asks you to do. And if you're ready to start a conversation with somebody about that today, I want to invite you to come find me or Kevin after service. Or if you're tuning in with us online, you can drop us a comment right now or email us at info at genesischurch.me so we can follow up with you this week. But this is Jesus's invitation. Believe in me. There's nothing more that you can do. There's nothing more you have to do. Believe in me. So we're gonna pray and then we're gonna share communion together and then we're gonna worship Jesus. And I wanna challenge you that in all of these moments that you really block out everything that's distracting you and you engage with him right now because this is his offer of eternal life for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you for these difficult words that Jesus shared. And Jesus, I can't imagine what it must've been like for you to stand in front of that large crowd and to share this teaching and to watch them turn their backs on you and to walk away. But I'm so thankful that you were faithful to the mission that your heavenly father had given you that you would set your face towards Jerusalem, 
knowing that in a year you would return there and you would be rejected and you would be killed and you would do it all for us. Thank you. So would you help us in this holy week to celebrate your sacrifice in our place? Would you teach us, Holy Spirit, to come to Jesus as our bread of life? Would you help us to surrender whatever part of this life we're holding on to so we can experience eternal life with you right now? And I pray for anyone that is on the fence. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would draw them to Jesus the way you did for me 20 years ago when you spoke so clearly and you drew me to you. Would you draw them to Jesus? Jesus, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray.